0: Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald-Times in Bloomington, along with Mary Catherine Carmichael, and today we're going to talk about the Olympics. We have uh, two Hall of Famers and one future Hall of Famer in the, uh, in, in the studio with us today. The retired Indiana University track coach Sam Bell is here. The retired diving coach at IU, Hobie Billingsley, is here. And Mark Lindsay, who was a diver for IU, also the 1992 Olympic gold medal winner, winner and uh, bronze medal winner in 1996. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you. You know what, Bob?
1: I think this officially counts as uh, brushes with greatness for us today.
0: Brushes with greatness. That's right. (laughs) I agree. Well, let me me give a little bit more uh, information about both Sam and Hobie. Um, Sam was a track coach at IU from 1970 to 1998. Um, He – track and cross-country coach. He was uh, a 1992 National Track and Field Hall of Fame inductee. He coached the uh, 1976 Olympic team in the distance, uh, the distance runners. He also coached the 1979 U.S. World Cup team and the 1987 U.S. Junior Pan American team. He coached 11 Olympians while he was uh, at IU, uh, including uh, people like Bob Kennedy and Jim Spivey, Mark Dede, Sunder Nix, Terry Brom, Robert Cannon, and Albert Robertson. Uh, Hobie coached with uh, Doc Councilman. They were uh, quite the dynamic duo Um, And he was the uh, diving coach at IU from 1959 to 1989. (laughs) His divers won 27 Big Ten and 16 NCAA individual championships. And uh, divers that he coached won over 115 national championships, three Olympic and four Pan Am gold medals, and five world championships. He was inducted into the International Swimming Hall of Fame in 1993. So, and he also was the U.S. diving Olympic diving coach in 1968 and 1972, and a whole lot of other things. So, and. Mark's just won a bunch of medals in the Olympics, uh, and and he's a coach now living here in Bloomington. So uh, having gotten all that out of the way, now everybody else knows how great you guys are. So let's talk about the Olympic Games, and I want to start with Hobie and just sort of talk about – you know your experiences in nineteen sixty eight, nineteen seventy two. I mean, what what was, what was it like when you went to your first Olympic games? Nineteen sixty eight was uh, my
2: first Olympics. Was nineteen sixty four? Okay, I wasn't the Olympic coach, uh-huh. and I had two winners. Oh, <laughs> I had to sneak into the pool in, in Tokyo, Japan, to get in, and a, a, a diving coach from Australia gave me his credentials, and that time I could get away with to get in the pool, uh-huh. <laughs> <clears throat> and they both won by miracles. The girl won the Olympic gold medal when she, she came here in the summertime. She was from Philadelphia and um, just an average kid, didn't make the finals of the national championships. I asked her if she'd like to come out and dive with us that summer. We taught her how to dive on a tower in six weeks and she went over and won the gold medal beat Ingrid Kramer who had won. Two medals at, at Rome and it just won the springboard medal. So it uh-huh. was a miracle. She was supposed to take last and everyone said so. Uh-huh. And the uh-huh. other one was uh, Kenny Sitzberger who got beat nine out of ten dies and still won the contest. Uh-huh.
0: And who was uh, the winner in 64?
2: <clears throat> uh, Leslie Bush.
3: Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And
2: she came to school here you know, and she mm-hmm. won everything. She won every uh, title you could think of and uh, – mm-hmm and that was no miracle. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and well, you, Sitzberger was definitely a miracle, though. He, he beat his teammate. He got beat 9 out of 10 dives. That uh-huh. would be like in track if you ran the 100-meter 100 100 dash and fell down and got up and still won the contest. <laughs> oh <my laughs> It'll never happen again.
0: Nope. All right. Wow. S- Sam, how about your first uh, first brush with the Olympics?
4: Well, I went to Tokyo in 64. <clears throat> it was the first time that I saw an Olympic Games. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I went to college coaching in 1958 and <clears throat> and uh that next spring uh, the Indiana coach spoke with Greg Bell uh who had won the gold medal in the long jump <clears throat> and uh uh 1956 <clears throat> so that was my first brush with the Indiana <laughs> background <laughs> and uh so um, uh that was Gordon Fisher and uh, then uh, I went to a total of eight Olympic Games Mm -hmm. and uh, my wife Fran went to seven and uh, so uh, we had the Olympics experiences together and in 64 when I went to Tokyo uh, we uh, had not reached a point at that stage where we had a whole lot of Olympians but we had two Mm -hmm. we had a kid from uh, California who'd come from a junior college and he set an American record that year in the 800 meters and uh, he ended up having a tie to Keeley's tendon and went out and ran in his meat shoes and hurt it again and he didn't get out of the trial rounds <clears throat> but he had an American record in the 800 meters. Mm-hmm. And Then we had a shot putter who uh, showed up one day in my office during registration and said that he uh, would like to go out for track and uh, I said, well, what do you do? He says, well, I threw the javelin but I can't throw it anymore because it hurt my elbow. But I'd like to be a shot putter. <clears throat> Two years later, he was on the Moroccan Olympic team and set a African record in the shot put. <laughs> oh, my gosh! <goodness. laughs> so uh, that was my first brush with the Olympics.
0: Mm-hmm. And and Mark, you, uh, of course, were an athlete in the Olympics. So in 1992 <clears throat> were the first games. And remind me where the 92 games were.
5: Barcelona, Spain. Barcelona, mm-hmm. OK. Um, a lot of people probably remember our venue uh, that overlooked the city. Oh, yes. And we were on the Montjuic Hill and... All the other athletes used to come to the pool just to take pictures because mm-hmm. it was such a great view. So that was kind of neat to win with that, that type of setting. And mm-hmm. um, but it was one of the it was my first Olympics. But it was I didn't get to see very much of it because before <laughs> before the event, I was focused in on what I had to do, practice and getting ready. Mm-hmm. And then when it was over, I got invited to all these you know Sports Illustrated this you know something over here dinner here dinner there try to help out the Olympic committee, you know, uh, with some of their events. And so I never got to really see anything until (laughs) Atlanta, you know, four years later, I made sure that when I was done that I went around and watched some of the other events. So I finally got to see some events.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. We there are a lot of things we can talk about today, we have a phone call already. So let's go to Andy on the phone. Andy.
6: Hi. Uh, I thought I'd just get the, uh, the obvious question out, which is the Michael Phelps question. Uh, my, my question is for all three of your guests, but especially for, uh, for Michael. Uh, there's, there's been a lot of debate on you know, just what significance this really means. You know, the fact that he, that he won eight gold medals, there's the majority that think that he's the greatest Olympian there, there ever was. Uh, there are some that say, yeah, it was remarkable, but to say that he's the greatest Olympian is, is kind of far-fetched. Um, uh, so I'm I'm wondering what your take is on that, and the second part of my question is this: I know that when uh, uh, the Miracle on Ice happened in the Winter Olympics, when the U.S. won against uh, the Soviet Union, um, that the hockey as a sport in this country just went up dramatically. You had kids that were. You know, they wanted to go out the next day and and find the local hockey league, and I wonder if the same thing is going to happen with uh, with swimming and with swimming clubs around in in our community and in, in Bloomington. And I'm from Bedford, and it hasn't been a huge thing here, but it's but it's starting to uh, to pick up more. And I'm wondering if uh, if you expect that to happen. So I'll just uh, hang up and listen to your comments.
0: All right, Andy, thanks. Let's start with Hobie Michael Phelps, <clears throat> best Olympian ever.
2: Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna brag about myself. I was the one that recruited Mark Spitz to come here. <laughs> okay. Well done. Yeah. Well, uh, you know how I know that because uh, uh, Doc told me so. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, uh huh. But when Doc retired, Mark got up and said, "Well, if it wasn't for Hopi, I wouldn't." I couldn't believe it. I, yeah. I did. I used to kid him all the time, <laughs> but uh, Mark Spitz was unique in what he did, and uh, Phelps is uh he's, I mean, he he's proven that he's the best, and he did it. Well, he was awful lucky, though, when he won one race by a hundredth of a second, mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. other guy came in the last ten feet and <laughs> rode a wave right in, like right. he was on a <laughs> like a surf. <laughs> but I mean, he deserves it. He's mm-hmm. and you know the nice thing, thing about he's a nice kid, as mm-hmm. you can obviously see. Mm-hmm. But uh, and I thought that Mark did a brilliant, uh, did a brilliant job in giving him the credit for doing what he did. Mm-hmm. Very the o- only thing that Mark has still over him, Mark broke the world's record in all seven and he didn't he 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 didn't get the world's record on uh, Butterfly mm-hmm. he just got the Olympic record so that's the only thing that Mark still has but you know it comes and goes but now I think it'll be it was 36 years you know that Mark had that mm-hmm. record
3: mm-hmm. Uh-huh.
2: and um, and he uh, I think it's going to be another 50 to 100 before it's broken again but he deserved everything he did he was mar- remarkable mm-hmm.
1: do you keep in touch with Mark Spitz?
2: oh I, I see him at meets yeah and we get together. He came back here. A big story. And he came back after he won the uh, his seven gold <clears throat> to do a water show with us, and he wasn't allowed to do it. And I, r- I raced him in the pool later on. <clears throat> one night to the pool and beat him because I had a wire in the water, and it pulled me
3: through the water. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> but, you know, it was, it was, it was, swimming has been good. And you, if you want to know whether it's going to have an impact on um, swimming around the country, it should because mm-hmm. he's good, he's really good and, he's, and he wants to help diving and swimming, so it's, it's the best thing that could have happened to us
0: I want to turn to, to Mark next <clears throat> Michael Phelps, best Olympian ever?
5: No question, mm-hmm. uh, in four more years he's already said he's going to swim again so he's going to add even more medals to what he's done It. I mean, I, like I hope he was saying, Mark Spitz was you know, phenomenal um, He was the, he was the greatest but, you know just like with any records, they're meant to be broken, and uh, Phelps is definitely going to do. You know, he's going to continue on, and he's going to win some more medals. Um, <laughs>
3: he's twenty two, right?
5: I think so. Yeah, twenty two, and yeah. and he'll help the sport. Um, just like what I'm trying to do now. I'm actually I moved back here a year ago, and I'm coaching the junior team, the age group diving team, and there are kids from four years old to about eighteen. Um, you know, all skill levels. Trying to get them involved with the, the sport of diving because it is a lot of fun when you when you get up there and bounce around and go off the platforms um and just to mention one other thing on august 31st at one thirty p.m we're going to have a free diving show at the outdoor pool and uh christina lucas should be back from beijing and said that if she's back here she's going to dive in it mm-hmm. so everyone's welcome to come out and Check it out, one thirty on Sunday, the thirty first. So,
0: where are these kids from? The four to eighteen year olds.
5: All around the area, uh, Bedford. Uh, I've got some in Ellettsville. I had one kid who was coming over from Columbus, but it was such a long drive for him that he took the summer off. But he should be back in September. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, they're just all around the area. I got a couple of kids from Indianapolis that are, are new that want to come down. So it's uh, we're trying to build it up. You know, we want the the IU team won the senior national title this year again. And what I'd like to do is make the junior team as good as the senior team so that they're winning, you know, age group national champions, championships because worldwide, Indiana is known for diving. We've got uh, more than half of the Olympic team lives and trains in Indiana. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really neat for me to come back. I took a few years off from, from diving and to come back to my alma mater, where it all started with Hobie, is really great, and it's fun coaching the kids.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to turn to Sam about the uh, – about the Michael Phelps, um, the Michael Phelps, uh, his great exploits in the Olympics, but also about track and field. And you know, you you can talk about Michael Phelps, greatest Olympian ever. And if, if there's a track athlete you want to throw out there for that
5: title, Carl Lewis, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
4: Well, uh, Phelps got seven world records out of the eight events he swam, <clears throat> and uh, uh, since. Uh, Mark Spitz only won seven; he couldn't get more than seven. <clears throat> but uh, swimming swimming lends itself more to doubling up and tripling up, and so forth in events. <clears throat> uh, there's a cooling factor in water, and there's no pounding on the legs like there is in track and field when you run, <clears throat> and so you can do a lot of work and. Uh, Uh, The example of that is in track and field, when people get injured a lot, they go train in the pool Mm -hmm. to take the pressure off the lower extremities. But uh, uh, Carl Lewis and Jesse Owens are names that will always stand out in uh, Olympic competition, especially since they won medals in the same events. And there's been a lot said about uh, uh, the sprinter uh, winning the 100 and the 200, mm-hmm. <coughs> the first he's, time since Carl Lewis. But Carl also won the long jump, mm-hmm. and uh, so Bolt is amazing. <coughs> he is really amazing, but um, I'm not sure he's the best athlete total ever. But he's certainly the best sprinter ever, mm-hmm. with what he did with the two world records and mm-hmm. so forth. But uh, <coughs> I don't think that you can take anything away from what Phelps did. It was just unreal.
7: Yeah. Hobie, gonna, did you have a –
2: Yeah. You uh, have to recognize that uh, the most <coughs> medals, uh, gold medals won by anybody was nine. He's just won 14. <laughs> you going to tell me he's not the best? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, the thing is going to be even worse. When he comes back, he's going to win a bunch more. Mm-hmm. He's going to put it so far that you're going to have to be Superman to, to beat what he's done.
3: Yeah.
1: I've heard it said that Michael Phelps has, is kind of the perfect storm when it comes to body type for the sport that yes, he's he is. in. Um, you know, longer torso, and, a lot of upper body strength.
2: And, and, and Yeah, strength and also quickness.
1: So is there a, a body type that you look at uh, or tends to be more successful when you're looking at potential diver, divers? Oh, Yeah. What do you look for? There? Well,
2: uh, it used to be that if you were over, uh, if you were over five feet ten, you couldn't dive because the boards were made of wood and you couldn't do the somersaults that we do today. But what we look for now is strength. Uh, we got rid of all the easy dives. You know, it used to be great when we did compulsory dives because you could show the, the grace and beauty of a dive. <laughs> But it's changed because it was so boring. No one wanted to watch it and the divers got bored too. So they started to change it and now all you see is acrobatics. They do five dives or six dives. The men do six. The women do five. It's all acrobatics and so what you're looking for is power, strength, uh, flexibility and you're, you're looking for someone getting the water clean. I, I remember when when uh, Mark was trying to learn, I, I didn't even want to coach him. He was so bad.
5: <laughs> and I
2: says, you got to learn how to get in the water clean and you can forget it. We can't help you. So you, you have to learn how to rip. And the body the body uh, uh, structure is the thinner you are, the less resistance there is on the water. So we're looking for people. And usually we wouldn't even look at a uh, diver or a uh, kid that was in gymnastics years ago. We wouldn't look at them. they uh, grace and stuff wasn 't in it at all. It was horrible, horrible performances and, and so but today we look at the gymnastics a lot because they were looking for power
3: mm-hmm. strength
2: you, these These kids are unbelievable what they do today with their bodies. and one in five eighths of a second is all the time you 're up there you know
3: wow.
2: and to do what they did was is uh, I know even i 'm in awe in, in watching them i 've been in the sport for sixty eight years. Mm-hmm. But that's what we look for. We look for a body type first and they have to have the strength to do it. And then it takes real good coaching. Conditioning is unbelievably tough now. Uh-huh. Uh, I know that in Indianapolis, 60 percent of the time they do it is in the gymnasium and 40 percent is in the pool. Hmm.
1: Just wow. strength training and, and yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah.
2: Flexibility yeah. is unbelievable. And you've got to have the power. It's got to be explosive or you just can't, you can't handle it. A kid could do a beautiful dives. Easy dives wouldn't even to get into it. Couldn't get past the
0: preliminaries. Mm-hmm. Wow! All right, we have a couple of phone calls. Let's go to Alex. Alex,
8: uh, Bob. Yeah, Alex. Yeah. yeah.
0: Hello. We go. Go ahead. And
8: uh, my greetings to Sam. Uh, I've got a two-part question. If you can do this, so the first question goes to Mark and Hobie, and the second question goes to Sam. Uh, first question has to do with diving, and and probably uh, you know I was looking for. Really good uh, results on the part of our diving teams, uh, the men's and the women's. But, um, I, and, and, of course, everybody's holding up uh, the Chinese team as the uh, uh, kind of exemplary, and, and, indeed, they perform well. And so it, I'm prompted to ask um, about the physical conditioning. It just seems like everyone's in good shape. We, we assume that they know all the mechanics, and they've done the bodybuilding and everything, but the side that I don't know whether it was lacking or what what happened was, but I uh noticed a, a significant difference in the mental preparation of the Chinese team in particular and and um as opposed to uh teams from other countries, including the United States. So I guess I'd like to comment on that. How we could uh if it is a problem, how do we overcome this problem of mental preparation? So that's
0: the first question. Okay, let's get the let's get the first answer. Mark? Okay.
5: Well, you know, that's very insightful what he said because I know when I was diving, um, I always believed that I was going to win. In fact, I made a comment to NBC in 92 that they asked me how I felt I, I was going to do and I said I don't train for second place, and uh, <laughs> which I didn't. <laughs> so I always believed in myself when I got up there and Hobie can can tell you some stories about how, you know – You've got to have it between the ears. Mm-hmm. I mean, once you get to that level, if you, if you can't compete, it doesn't matter what you're doing in practice. I've seen lots of divers win practice after practice, but they get in the meet and they're all over the place. So you, you have to be able to have it. As far as ways to prepare for that, um, I think what helped me was I played every sport growing up, you know, football through baseball, swimming, I swam more years than I did anything else. <clears throat> Track and field, I ran the mile. I mean, I did it all. And I think all that competition growing up, um, from like four years old all the way up until the Olympics helped me to be mentally prepared for what I needed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that happened, maybe was a stroke of luck, I guess, was in 89, uh, I was a junior, and we had the world, uh, world championship up in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. And I went up there, and it was called the FINA World Cup, and I won. And I beat the medalists from the previous Olympics, all except Luganus. He wasn't there. And Hobie came up to me after the meet and said, "Congratulations, you're a world champion." I said, "What?" I had no idea it was a world championship. I just thought it had the world in the in the title. So, so I actually won the world not knowing it. Had I known it was a world championship, who knows? I might have I might have missed a little bit, but but that was good. That let me know, hey, I can compete with the best in the world. And the rest is history as far as what we did. Yeah, Hobie. Um and. Well, he's talking about it
2: was in practice one day, and I was just giving the dickens about what he's doing. I says, you know, if you just listen to me, I can take you to the moon. And when he won that contest, I'm in tears. I ran over and grabbed him and says, welcome to the moon.
5: No. <laughs> oh, and three years after that, we we're in Barcelona. And just like that, after I won, Hobie came up to me and he said, you're, you're beyond the moon now, kid. You're, you're past Mars. Oh, so it, great. right on cue. To
2: show you where we've come from, when Louganis <clears throat> retired in 1988, we 1984, all the divers on, on the uh, United States team got a medal. There were seven divers, and they all got medals. <coughs> in 1988, we got four medals. In 1980, uh, 80, 1992, we got three medals. In 1996, we got two medals. In, 19, in the year 2000, we got one medal. Oh, no, in the year sure. 2004, we got no medals. Mm-hmm. So the point comes up. Where did we go from? And uh, 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 the people in this country are confused and frustrated about doing it. Thank God for the program that they have up in Indianapolis. They're, they're, they're holding this up. They're, they're two great coaches up there. Huber's a good one too. There's no doubt about that. But I went to a, before a committee one time and I says, why aren't we getting the medals? I says, yeah, we just selected the Olympic team. And I says, how many of these kids do you think you can get a medal? They all looked at 27 people in the room. They looked around and said, All of them. I said, All right, question. Then why aren't they getting them? Mm-hmm. It's got to be one of two things either they're really not good enough or we're not getting the proper coaching. And they took me off the committee. <laughs> 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 but it's true. And so we're, we're doing something about that now. We're getting more conditioned. And we're, the technology's all come from us in the first place, you know. <clears throat> the Chinese, uh, I said three years ago, you, you're not going to beat the Chinese in China. There's no way, and it's, it, we're proving it's exactly what we saw. But uh, what we're trying to do now is to train more in their direction. But when I went to the Chinese when they first came into the sport, they they started from the top. You know, they didn't come in and work their way up. They were there on their first time they ever dived. So I we went to the Chinese coaches who I got to know real well over the years, and says, "Where'd you get your information? This is what we got from the Russians." And I says, well, where the Russians get it from? He says, from the United States, and you're trying to copy us, and we think you're crazy.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Which is true. They just, they dive eight hours a day. How do we compete with people who dive eight hours a day when our kids can only work maybe at the most three hours a day?
0: Mark, how much did you dive when you were getting ready?
5: Well, uh, two practices a day for probably about an hour and a half, two hours at a yeah. time. That's about all I could do. I had to go to school. You had to go to school. I had yeah. to work, you know, a yeah. um, little bit. Heart. It's. I know with some of the kids now that are on the Olympic team, that dive in Indy, they have longer training periods, but they're all home so that they can actually train when other kids are in school. Right.
0: Okay, Alex, how about your question for Sam? Sam, yeah,
8: you know, uh, I we were all disappointed in what happened with the relays, both the men's and the women's, and what a coincidence uh, the same baton exchange would would happen to both teams. And I'm just wondering. Uh, one commentator was saying that uh, you can't. Uh, you can't bring together the uh, the elite 100-yard performers, for example, and put them on a relay team at the last minute and expect them to perform. And I just wonder, what what, what's the solution to that if indeed that is the case? How do we get them to train together enough so that the, they can make uh, efficient, clean handoffs?
4: Well, I think that the first thing you do is when you go to camp, and you go to camp quite a while before the competition starts, is as coaches you have to work the kids and, and you don't have to, debilitate them physically, you just need to work on the technique. And if you watch the techniques of that last exchange, the the third exchange for both teams, it was blown because of the way the outgoing athlete put their hand back and when, and it was blown because of the way the incoming athlete tried to put the baton in the hand of the outgoing athlete. And I blame that on coaching. And one thing that happens when you go to an Olympic Games in track and field, as a coach, you are generally uh, uh, supervising and trying to make things as pleasant for the kids as possible. But um, you've got to do some work on skills where you're working with different people in an event that they haven't been together on before. Mm-hmm. And uh, I watched the the exchange over and over and over again as they showed it on TV and there were some real mistakes made in the technique of what they did. Right, Sam, is there
0: practice time when you're there, when you're out oh, there? Sure office? there is, mm-hmm. sure.
4: There's, uh, there's first of all, a warm-up practice track mm-hmm. beside the stadium, and it's available anytime. And uh, uh, they don't have to run a full relay to do work on exchanges. So you work through the exchange zones.
0: Okay. All right. Well,
3: Alex, a lot. Thanks I a lot appreciate for the call. It.
0: We're going to have to take a, a short break. We have a phone call and we have some email, but we've hit halftime, so we're going to take a break. <laughs> uh, our guests are Mark Lindsay, who was the 1992 Olympic gold medal diver, um, retired diving, IU diving coach and former Olympic coach Hobie Billingsley, and retired Indiana University track coach and former Olympic coach Sam Bell. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back.
7: www.southdunnstreet.info If you're a person on the go, you can take WFIU programs with you. We're podcasting. Podcasting is a convenient and easy way to download audio files directly to your computer. Listen anytime from your computer, iPod, or portable player. You can download podcasts of full-length programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential. The Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and movie, play, and opera reviews. You can find out how with a visit to our website at wfiu.org.
0: Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. Today we're talking about the uh, Olympic Games and we have uh, three distinguished guests with us. The retired Indiana University track coach Sam Bell is here. Sam was uh, an Olympic coach in 1976 and has coached a lot of Olympic athletes. Uh, also retired IU diving coach Hobie Billingsley is here. Hobie coached the IU or the, uh, Olympic, U.S. Olympic divers in 1968 and 1972 and coached a number of Olympic divers. And Mark (coughs) Lindsay is here, who was the 1992 Olympic gold medalist and a 1996 Olympic bronze medalist, both times in the three-meter springboard.
5: Correct. correct? Okay.
0: If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. And you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. And let's go to the phone first. And Ramona is on the line. Ramona? Uh,
6: Yes. My uh, question is for Hobie. There are all kinds of stories and rumors out there about why Mark Spitz was not at the Olympics. I just wonder, do you know what the real story is?
2: No. Um, when he was being interviewed, he was in Detroit, and I was as surprised as anybody to say, well, why wasn't he over there? <laughs> um, it's hard to say because uh, he does a lot of traveling anyway, but I, I have no idea why he wasn't there. But I thought he did a beautiful job in what he did to uh, over in, in the interview.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, Ramona. That's, okay, thank
1: that's, you. Sorry,
0: that's all you're, that's all you're getting.
1: All Here's an email that came in and it hits a little bit on what we were discussing before the break but the the writer wants to know, uh, what would you say is the most important psychological factor in the making of a champion? Sam,
4: you want to start? (laughs) Well, I think belief in self is is the most important factor as far as the mind is concerned and uh, envisioning what's possible instead of envisioning what's impossible. And uh, there are lots of people who have done great things that uh, on paper you wouldn't have thought they could. And uh, and I think that's true in every sport.
0: Do you have some examples of people you've coached that you think uh, had just the right mental attitude and maybe got more out of their uh, natural abilities than they might have otherwise?
4: Well, over 40 years of coaching <laughs> it, uh, on the college level, it, uh, there's a lot of kids that go through the, the mill. And I think uh, – Sometimes what impresses a coach most are those kids who come into the program and don't have the tools to succeed, who over time develop the tools to succeed. And that comes from an attitude. I think of one guy in particular in this regard it was a kid from uh, Wilson High School in Portland, Oregon who came to Oregon State. and uh, He came there because the year before I'd been a high school coach and uh, had had a kid break the national high school mile record. and. Uh, he was just gaga about being there and working and doing all that. And this was in the early stages of when weight training came into being with runners. And uh, he developed the skills to outlift all of our throwers. And uh, <clears throat> he eventually said, a uh, – he'd run 203 in high school and 880 yards. And in college, he ran 148 flats." Uh, so he didn't put limits on himself. And uh, a lot of people do that, but he envisioned that he would do the best he could. And uh, he was fourth in the Olympic trials in one thousand nine hundred and sixty four and we had a guy that was also first, and we had another one who was fifth uh, but uh, uh, he uh, he was, he developed his skills far beyond what you would have ever thought he could mm-hmm.
0: all right uh, Mark, you want to answer that first question about the just the mental makeup
4: <clears throat> yeah I, I I agree
5: I think it 's confidence <clears throat> um, you know I was actually accused of being a little cocky when I was a <laughs> diver, but it wasn't that I was cocky. I was just confident in what I, what I was going to do. I mean, if you put on a Speedo and you stand up on a three-meter board and the whole world's watching, you better be confident that you're going to do a reverse mm-hmm. three-and-a-half and land on your head or you're going to miss. And uh, I was very confident in what I was doing because I was, I was trained right. Um, Hobie taught through physics and mechanics, which is the way I coach now. And if you know how an action-reaction works in a dive... Uh, You can be confident uh, in your knowledge of what you're doing is correct as well. And so you put those two together and I think that's when you get a champion.
3: Okay.
2: Hobie? Um, I think another thing involved here is discipline. and When they come in there, uh, I know that uh, I had 18 kids make an Olympic team and they came from different countries and whatnot. And when they came in there, I said, I'll tell you how this is going to work two ways, my way and my way. (laughs) And uh, I was – uh people – we tell a lot of jokes and we're funny and so we would always – kids would always say when we come to the pool, they always like to come to practice because there's something's going to happen that's going to make us laugh. Sometimes <laughs> it made them cry. <laughs> 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 but that was the attitude we had and uh, I don't think that I ever coached anyone that I didn't try to get them to, to perform to the best they could. When he won the Olympic gold medal, we were walking off the deck and he says, how did I do coach? And I says, I think you did very well but I'm disappointed. She said, disappointed. I just won the world championship. I beat the Chinese and everybody. I said, but you didn't do the dives I wanted you to do. You could have performed better than what you did. You didn't do the back three and a half or the inward three and a half, did you? I was looking for your performance. I don't care about you winning. I just want you to perform the best you can. Of course I'm glad that you won. But that was the attitude we had with all the kids. And we used to push a lot of buttons when you got the meets. We try to figure out what we could tell them to give them to do a dive, and, and it happened over and over. We we come up with a little. I could give you a big story, but I'll give you one. Uh, Robbie Bollinger's in, in uh, 11th place on, on the one-meter springboard. Doc comes over and he says, <clears throat> Doc always said this, well, if the divers come through, we can do this, we can do that. What an outlet. He had 16 events. I had two.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so he comes over to me this time. He says, if you guys just don't perform, he says, We're gonna, we won't get in the top ten in the country in, in uh, scores. So I went to Robbie Bollinger, at, who had came here. He was a, a gymnast. He had horrible form. Nobody recruited me so bad. He's in third, 11th place and I'm thinking – and uh, when he, I recruited him, Dick Kimball, who was a coach from Michigan, called me up and says, you didn't take that kid, did you? I says, I had to. His father moved in with me. I couldn't get rid of him because <laughs> I went to school with his father at Ohio State. So what happens, I thought, what can I tell this kid to get him to do the dive? Well, Kimball says, if that kid ever gets a point in a dual meet, he's going to be a miracle. Well, you get one point for even competing in a dual meet if you're third. <laughs> so, so I went over to him and I said um, – Robbie, you see that guy over there? He says, yeah. He says, remember when he called me up when you came to school? He said that you wouldn't be worth it. You couldn't even get a point in a duel meet. Do you really believe that? I walked away. Robbie goes.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> he gets up. And he does his last dive. He was on his last dive. He does a number two and a half and he got nines. He moved from 11th to 2nd <laughs> <laughs> over one comment. But this is the psychological put that you put into him is that you get him so you can push a button and get him to, to perform. I don't know if our coaches today at the Olympic Games know how to shift gears. <laughs> you have to shift gears. There's a time when you can be nice and there's a time when you've got to be mean. And when you can – if you have the – if you're the real coach, you can feel that. And you'll know when you have to make the punch or you can back off. Either you go positive or negative. But sometimes negative is what makes it work and sometimes it's positive. But a a real coach has got to be able to figure that out for each individual, how he's going to approach that kid at a given time.
5: All right.
1: Mark's doing a lot of head shaking over here. I think he's been on the receiving end of some of that motivation. (laughs) Yeah.
5: (laughs) (laughs) I remember one time at Ohio State. Uh, I was a freshman and uh, was diving really bad. And Hobie took me aside and his eyes glowing red, those glasses he always wore, and just reams me out. And I felt like I was a, a foot tall sitting in the corner. And I got up and uh, beat Mike Wantuck who was their senior. Uh, I think he was a world champion, too. Three times national champion. Yeah. And I cleaned his clock. <laughs> so, you know, it was like, all right. now And that set the precedent for the future because Hobie knew that he could yell at me and it would get me to perform. It, it didn't bother me. Maybe it was the ex-wrestler in me that made that work. But <laughs> you knew you could take him. He knew. He, <laughs> no, he knew I could take what he was giving out yeah, and, and yeah. then I'd dish it out to my competitors. <laughs>
0: yeah. All right. and noon at indiana.edu. We're talking with uh, Hobie Billingsley, Sam Bell, and Mark Lindsay today. We're talking about the Olympic Games. Um, how much have the Olympics changed since you two were coaching in '68, '72, and '76, Hobie?
2: Amateurism goes to professionalism, mm-hmm. and the, I mean the Dream Team—what a joke that is! Mm-hmm. Uh, you know any college uh, basketball players that go to the Olympics anymore? No, and the technology has changed so much and uh, because of that technology and the training and the coaching is – well, Doc Councilman changed the world in, in swimming. You know, He came up with the science swimming, changed the stroke where they used to do a straight arm and found out that if you bend your arm like that, if you watch it, they're bending their arms to get more power and strength. So we've, we've, we've moved away from the, uh, copying each other. We were particularly trying to do this in diving. The only thing that you did between uh, 1889 up to 1960 was to copy somebody else or trial and error. In 1960 here, we found out, as Doc did, that you go to the science of it. You could prove how you could do a perfect dive. Right now, there's not one word written on how you're supposed to do a dive. So where's the perfection? So we've gone from amateurism and we've gone to, to uh, copying each other, to going to the, the science side of it. And I think it's happened a lot in training. Interval training is something you know where you swim a certain distance and you take a, take a breather and swim again. Mm-hmm. They used to think that if, the farther you swim, the faster you could swim, which was stupid. <laughs> it was ridiculous. And you look back at how bad they were and see what we do today. That, uh, the technology and all the sports has changed so much that they've really caught on to
4: it. Mm-hmm. Sam? Well, I think that uh, the big thing is that we've become professional. And uh, I think that uh, the Amateur Athletic Union was what used to be the controlling body for both swimming and track and field. And uh, the NCAA fought them for a long time and created a new association, the U.S. uh, Track and Field Federation. And eventually uh, uh, the... uh, Congress issued an edict that there would be a new organization. And USA Track and Field was born there. That wasn't what it was called at the time, but that's what it's become. And uh, so there's uh, different ruling bodies. Uh, some of the old AAU politicians are still in charge, though, and that's too bad. <clears throat> but uh, uh, the thing that's happened, uh, every athlete who goes to the Olympic Games has an agent, uh, and they talk about help making $38 million next year, uh, that could he could probably retire on that, uh, and yeah, uh, <laughs> it would depend on how you want to spend it. Yeah, right. <laughs> but uh, uh, it's uh, it's a whole new ball game because of that. And uh, if you think about the United States, for example, in basketball, if you bring in all the greatest pros we have, there's no way somebody's going to beat us unless somebody just blows it, and. Uh, uh, in track and field, uh, there are people who, uh, it would surprise people who think and can only think in terms of football and basketball, but it would, it would surprise people that there are a lot of track and field people who go out and get six figures uh, with what they're doing. And uh, Phelps is a multimillionaire, obviously, and, and is going to be a bigger one. But um, you were talking about what creates? He also has a size 14 shoe mm-hmm. and that gives that foot a lot of leverage when he starts, yeah. starts moving that foot. <clears throat> but uh, uh, there's um, a lot of so-called experts out there who write what, what ought to be done and there's a lot of people who read that stuff and start trying to copy it and they haven't, ex- they haven't examined it to a point and say, is this logical? Does it make sense? And coaches need to do that in looking at situations that are going on and what people say because there's a lot of so-called experts who become experts because they write something. (laughs) Because they write it doesn't make it true. That's my job, right? (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) 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 I I wanted to – oh, go ahead. Well,
1: no, I just – you know, between the three of you, you have many, many Olympic experiences between you. And with Jim McKay's recent passing, it it got me thinking about that whole – you know, sad situation that that he broadcasts from Berlin, and I wondered if you had um, noticed a change in the Olympic event or games. The the feeling um, uh, when you go to the games, you know, kind of before and after that experience.
5: Well, I for me, I, I've been in two Olympics. Uh, you know, Barcelona. Well, ninety two in Barcelona was the first year that they had the dream team, and I really. Don't think they should be there personally, but um, in 96, it was, you know, they were there again and <clears throat> for me, it felt like because it was in the United States, the atmosphere of the games was pretty exciting. Um, the crowds were huge. I know at the diving venue, there was, Hobie, how many people were in there? That was packed. Three million. <laughs> I mean, it was huge. It was, it was one of the biggest crowds I've ever seen. Um, you know, they were, they were cheering so loud, a lot of times it threw me off because they didn't announce my name and you know they, they do that for like two minutes and I'm like you know putting my hands up like you know okay stop I gotta dive now and it just make them cheer louder because mm-hmm. ah. they had a big TV screen on the platform and you know it, it was great I, I loved it but it was definitely a different atmosphere than, than Barcelona uh, Barcelona was a lot more serious <laughs> for me um, I was a lot more focused then and I wasn't hurt I was a, I had a bad shoulder in Atlanta but yeah. but I think uh the atmosphere is changing with more and more pros coming in with money. I mean I didn't make any money. Um, Not at I d- all. I didn't do it for that but yeah. it would have been nice. <laughs> if there's sure. somebody out there that wants to give me some now, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: I think uh, – so uh, part of Mary Catherine's question is about the political atmosphere. Exactly, yeah. is there, are there Sam?
4: Uh, there's a, a book just come out uh, called Rome 1960 mm-hmm. and uh, it's uh, – a history of what happened at the Olympic Games in 1960, how politics came into play. It was the height of the Cold War and the uh, U.S. CIA and State Department were trying to get our athletes to help somebody defect from the U.S.S.R. And uh, they selected Venesian, Igor Terovenesian who was a world record holder in the long jump and spoke perfect English and, and uh, was a friend of several of the people, but they, they picked Dave Sim to try to get him to defect. And they pretty well had it set according to his book and a CIA agent came in to try to close the deal and he just turned oh, Terevanesian off and it was, it, was a done, it was a dead deal. Uh, but uh, I think that uh, what he says in the book is this was the first political Olympic Games. I don't think that's entirely true but it's probably basically true. And uh, from there we went to 1964 to Tokyo. Where the Japanese were trying to make up for some things that had caused World War II, and uh, they were re- one thing I, I spoke down at Rotary the other day. And one of the things that I said was that my wife went over with Track and Field News uh, Olympic Tour, and among the people who were there was the mayor of uh, Mountain View, California. He weighed close to 400 pounds, and when he went to the Olympic uh, opening ceremonies, he sat in a seat that he had been assigned. And a Chinese couple came in to sit beside him and there was only room for one of them to sit down. So that guy held his wife on his lap the whole time during the <laughs> ceremony. Oh. <laughs> and 1968 was a very political uh, thing because of the black fist of uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos uh, in black gloves. And uh, they were making a statement about the mistreatment of blacks in this country. Uh, in 72, it was uh, where the Israelis had a lot of athletes get killed in the Olympic Village. Mm-hmm. And uh, it goes on and on. And, and uh, then in 1980, we had the Jimmy Carter boycott. <clears throat> and uh, he decided that uh, we ought to boycott. And he didn't even think about the athletes and uh, who had worked so hard to get there and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it it uh, is a situation. I think that has changed the atmosphere and... In addition to that, I think the thing that changed the atmosphere from the mid 60s until the present time was anabolic steroids. Uh, and uh, the uh, drug testing got pretty efficient uh, starting in 1968. And we had a training camp at, uh, or 1976 rather, we had a training camp at Plattsburgh, New York, and then went up to Montreal from there in bus. And when we got to the Olympic Village <clears throat> the entrance, the uh, people who were doing drug testing met the bus and wanted two of our throwers. They wanted uh, Mac Wilkins and Al Feuerbach. And uh, Mac Wilkins and Al they had missed the bus and uh, they had been in Europe all summer training and me- talking to the East Germans and the USSR athletes about what they were doing with drugs and they had, they had learned how long it took to get clean. And so they didn't get on the bus because they knew they weren't going to be clean. They showed up about three days later and got tested and they were clean. Uh, but testing has become more sophisticated since then. And the USOC has a rule that anybody who's an Olympic prospect has to keep them informed constantly of where they are and what the phone number is and all that. And then they have a rule that the athletes call knock and pee. Uh, so they, uh, wherever the athlete is, they can go knock on the door and get a urine sample. And so they can't hide. And if they if they suspect somebody is going to to be using drugs, they're going to go get them. And that has begun to clean it up. It hasn't totally done it, but it's getting close.
0: I, th- I think a lot of us were really disappointed about Marion Jones. Yeah. Um. And, you know, because she was uh, such a star in the, the Olympic <coughs> Games, and now she's in prison.
4: Well, right? one of the things that one of the things that happens that all of all the druggies try to deny it. But when you have the evidence, it's impossible. And when you lie under oath, why? Then so they go get them. But uh, she married a druggie. Mm-hmm. She married a thrower who was on drugs. And so it wasn't a big surprise that she ended up using drugs.
3: Right.
0: OK. We only have about four or five minutes to go. And I just have to ask both Hobie and, and Mark about the physics of diving because I, I watch those divers and the, <coughs> all the, the twists and the turns and the and – the, spins and the flips, and and it doesn't seem possible. Same with gymnastics, but yeah. it doesn't seem possible. Well, How, how's it? How's well, it
2: in the first place, um, when Greg LeGanis landed on the board in, in 1988 in Seoul, they must have shown that, that picture of him hitting that board 900 times every Olympic game. Surprisingly, they didn't show it this time because the Chinese is over in China. But that did a lot for our sport. Here's the greatest diver in the world, lands on the – hits his head on the board and they make a big issue out of it. So diving is a very dangerous sport. I, I my average 18 divers on this team every year, 18 kids in here. Some of them started from the beginning like him. We didn't have any danger of anybody hitting anything because we went to the mechanical principles based on the laws of motion. And we could show them if you do this, it's like telling a little kid, "Don't see that stove? If that light, that, that thing is burning, don't put your hand on it or you'll burn your hand off. Well, it's the same thing in diving. If you do this, you're going to get hurt. If you do that, you don't get hurt. And that's the way we went. Um, I went through my entire career and I think I, I had maybe two kids that ever, ever got hurt hitting a diving board. And the boards are very flexible, you know. So if you hit it, it will go with it, with a punch. But um, we went to the scientific principles. In 1960, and it changed everything. And as a result, I was the first one to do it. And all of a sudden, we started beating the hell out of everybody. They couldn't touch us. And he says, how are you doing it?" I tell him, and they didn't believe me. <laughs> and we went a long time, 15 years we, we ruled the, the, the country and most of the world in the sport because we went to the science of it all. He went to the science of it. And he's really good in science. The reason why he was good is because he could understand what we were talking about.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And,
5: well, uh, Hobie explained it really well through analogies and I try to do that with the kids uh-huh.
2: so. I, I gotta say one more thing before we get off the air uh-huh. there was a comment made on the radio the other day that uh, Lucan when she did a perfect vault
3: uh-huh. and
2: she got 15 remember and right. that shiny girl came in right up behind her and landed on her butt uh-huh. and got 14.8 right and the uh, uh, comment on the radio was, well, uh, she was born in, in Russia and her parents were in Russian, so she shouldn't have even been in there. So I called up the people and I says, listen, I says, the, uh, she is a citizen. And if you're a citizen, the only place you can compete in the Olympic Games is from what country you're a citizen in. The guy didn't blame me. You know what would happen if you didn't have that rule? we'd be down picking up all the doggone Jamaicans right now and having them on our team. I mean, you can't go from one country to another
5: unless you're a citizen to to compete in the game. I want to get that clear before I get off the air. Sure. Um, Going back to the physics part of it, it's really just Newton's three laws and how they apply. Action-reaction. For every action, there's an unspeakable reaction. That's just about everything in diving. Um, Hobie used to say, you know... uh, if you if you sit behind the coaches at nationals, you'll be shocked at what they don't know. <laughs> and I I try to tell my kids to do the same thing when we go to meets. Let's sit back and listen to what they they say. You know, it's almost like uh, there's another joke. Ho used to always say, "He'd say, don't go over, and don't go short, and beat the guy that gets second. Now that's coaching. <laughs> <laughs> so I I mention that to my kids every once in a while. Try to get them to laugh, but uh, it's really simple, it, you know. It's basic physics. You can go get any book in the library um, and look it up. Learning how to apply it is very simple. Um, If a diver is going straight up and down, say, and they reach with their arms in front of their body, that's an action. What's the reaction? Your legs want to go the other way. Mm -hmm. So your legs go over. You actually go over. And a lot of times I have my divers doing what are called lineups where they just fall in and practice reaching lateral, not in front. And – I'll tell them, you know, you reached under on that. That's why it went over. And they understand it because I've explained how the physics of it works. But mm-hmm. so they learn faster. Yeah, okay.
1: That well. sounds simple, Bob. Maybe you and I will take it. Yeah, time. maybe.
5: <laughs> All right. right. Come on out. We would be.
1: What are you guys laughing at?
5: We'll get yeah. you on 10-meter. We'll <laughs> yeah. yeah. we'll start on 10-meter. Did you
0: uh, – you, you said you were hurt before the 96 games. Did you hurt your shoulder doing a
3: dive?
5: Yeah, actually. I, I, uh, I took a couple of years off in between Olympics and I did a – reversed two and a half up in Michigan landed short and tore my rotator Yeah, I,
0: that is one thing that, that I heard one of the announcers say the other night about Laura Wilkinson and the fact that she's 30 years old now and she's been diving you know from yeah. great heights for a long time and just hitting the water constantly So,
2: well you, uh, the thing one in,
3: the got thing, one minute okay
2: the thing in diving is you see them wearing a lot of, a lot of yeah. stuff now because the rotation is so much more more force is hitting the water it causes more injuries yeah. And uh, in her case, she was thirty years old, so she was uh, she's going to get
5: injured quite often. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. My body's beat up from my years of diving. And I only dove for what eight years total, maybe nine years, and I've I've got injuries to this day. My calves, I can't run because I, I tore my calves. So yeah, diving looks easy, but it, it it'll beat you up. Yep.
0: All right, we're out of time. We're going to have to go. I want to thank uh, Sam Bell and Hobie Billingsley and Mark Lindsay for being here with us today. And thank you, Mary Catherine, for Ariana Prothero and Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening.